So uh, several years ago, I was doing some last-minute Christmas shopping with my family, and we were in this you know, big box department store uh, back in Kentucky, and my son uh, was four at the time. His name's Silas, and I'm holding his hand so he wouldn't get lost in the crowd, and he said, Dad, I really need to go to the bathroom. So if you're a parent, you got little kids, you know your window's really short, so I'm trying to find the bathroom. I finally locate it, and the only unfortunate thing was we had to walk through the women's lingerie section to get there. So I'm a preacher. I'm doing my best to keep my eyes you know, focused on the ground, not making eye contact with anyone or anything. And Silas said, Dad, look, which is the most dangerous thing to say in that section of the store, especially if you're a preacher. And so I kind of hesitantly look up, and he lets go of my hand and yells, hide and seek, and takes off running. And he loved playing hide and seek in stores. And I was like, oh, not in this part of the store. It's so mortifying. So... I'm an introvert. I'm pretty reserved by nature. So I'm just, you know, playing the game and I'm, you know, pulling clothes back and that part of the store saying, hey, buddy, where are you? And all these women are looking at me like, who's this creep? And um, I see my son. Uh, He's crawled up, climbed up on top of a sales table. And he has, excuse me, a bra above his head. And with all the excitement of a four-year-old, he said, dad, on Tom and Jerry, they use these as parachutes. And he runs and jumps off the table, and I just turn every shade of red imaginable. Um, all the women in the area start laughing at me, all the moms especially. And so I scoop my, my son up. He's mine. I can't pretend that he's not. And that's when I hear this voice behind me, female voice, say, hey, aren't you the preacher at Southland? And very quickly, I turned around. I said, no, ma'am. My name is Aaron Pennington. Uh, I... <laughs> Work at a church out in Colorado Springs. We'd love to have you if you want to fly out there sometime. <laughs> Just kidding. Hey, I love Aaron, love Corey. Uh, my nephew, Josiah, is on staff here now. And, you know, to have Abby and Ross leading in worship, I've known them for a long time and so many other great people here. I'm just excited uh, to be here today. It's, it's really a privilege for me and to see uh, all that God is doing through you. You should be encouraged. Those baptisms and what happened last week on Easter is a sign of God's presence and God's favor on this church. I can't wait to see what he does in the future. Uh, today, I want to encourage you from Mark chapter 10. So if you have a Bible or mobile device, we'll be there. We'll kind of piggyback into Galatians 5 and 6. If you don't have those things, don't worry. You'll be able to follow along on the screen. Uh, but I want to set up our time of teaching uh, by introducing you to someone who means a lot to me. His name is Donnie. And Donnie is a 55-year-old man who sadly uh, suffered a traumatic brain injury at the hands of a violently abusive stepdad. Uh, Donnie's stepdad would beat him up and lock him in the bathroom for days on end, and this kind of locked Donnie into a permanent stage of adolescence. Uh, He has the emotional, mental wherewithal of a six- or seven-year-old boy, and because of that, I'm his, uh, his legal guardian and have been for 19 years, and I'm proud of Donnie. I consider him, even though he's older than me, to be my son. And what I love about Donnie is he works really hard. Uh, He works at Fazoli's, and he passes out those breadsticks that make you smell like garlic for a month. And he earns only $700 a month, but with that $700, he's very disciplined and diligent. He pays his bills. Uh, $400 of that goes towards bills. And then $200 to $300, I can't stop him from doing this. He puts it in his pocket, gets on the city bus or a bike, and he rides from garage sale to garage sale, for 12 months, buying Christmas gifts for all of his friends. Uh, Donnie has a Christmas list with 381 names on it, and it grows every year. Uh, If he were to meet you, he would hug you in the most awkward way imaginable, and then he would ask you your name and put your name on the list. If you're a woman, 
You're going to get costume jewelry or a paper novel. Uh, if you're a guy, you're going to get cologne. Uh, this past Christmas, I got a half-used bottle of Stetson. Uh, it's been amazing for my marriage. My wife can't keep her hands off me, so I have Donnie uh, to thank for that uh, little jewel. Um, but I tell you about Donnie because he embodies an important truth that we see in Scripture that I think a lot of Christians miss. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 said, the only thing that counts, and friends, he could have written a lot of things after that statement. He said, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Anytime I meet anyone who's wrestling with selfishness or materialism or greed, I say, hey, you need to meet my friend Donnie. And I take them to lunch and I introduce them. One of them was a young man named Tony uh, who has made millions of dollars scoring music for movies and TV and commercials. You've probably heard some of his music without realizing it. But he was wrestling with what to do with the money that he's made. And I said, let me introduce you to my friend Donnie. And they became fast friends. And I asked Tony recently if he would sit down in front of a camera and just share with you the difference that Donnie's love and generosity has made in his life. Take a look at this. And I just looked over, and, I, and uh, then I saw Muhammad Ali. I said, and there's this lovely wife look at her smiling right behind me. Her, right out. And so she, oh, she, I talked to both of them for about 10, 15 minutes right there. He and I talked, and, uh, and he, he had his arm around me too, in fact. Look, and here's um, my mother. Okay, this is right, this right, huh? this right behind uh, the wing, uh, right here, uh, 28A. My mother and I, uh, first uh, plane trip together, uh, uh, Thursday, November 15th, 1984, uh, as a Christmas present. That's okay. Uh, no, as a Christmas present from me to her. <sighs> I enjoyed that day. I enjoyed her so much, so much I enjoyed. Uh, there, that's, that's. My mother loved that right there because she loved that outfit. Because look, look at Judge Judy's. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that coming. Look. So, yeah, which, uh, and then this is what Tony Anderson gave me. Yeah, he, he got this because he's so cute. I tell you. And I wore this. Did you see Tony Anderson's picture right here, too? Yes, I did. I told Tony Anderson, I want to put you as close to my bed as I can so I can look at you all night, every night. I'm going to skip over it. Watch this out to Tony. Wednesday, 3, 20 p.m. Time and day not set. Donnie, you there, buddy? It's Tony calling you again. Uh, call me as soon as you get this, because we want to film over your place tonight. So call me back. We'll talk soon. Love you, buddy. Bye. I love, I love him. He's great. Uh, but look. I had been given an old Dell desktop, and I had Fruity Loops, and I had um, terrible ideas. Uh, the great thing about that time is that I could risk everything. There was no idea that I could be successful and there was no idea that I could fail. And it was fun. All of a sudden that childlike joy and innocence I used to have um, has been replaced with this very adult, business-like approach to music. And what scares me is when I write something because I'm trying to compete with someone. You know, what is that? You know, why is it that when I hear amazing music from one of my friends, my first thought is not to celebrate them, but to compare 
to say, how am I going to make something better than that? And I'm actually starting to believe that um, relationships might be better than writing tons of music and people knowing my name. There's this one guy in particular named Donnie who would show up like every day and he'd knock on the door and um, he would just want to talk. He didn't want anything from me, he just wanted to be loved. He just wanted to be listened to. And I kept sending this guy away because I had better things to do, you know? Like, sorry, dude, I got stuff to create. I got deadlines. Um, and Donnie doesn't know what I do, and he doesn't care what I do. And he's not impressed by who uses my music. Donnie cares whether or not I opened up my door that day. Society looks at Donnie, and they think there's something wrong with him. I used to think there was something wrong with him. Because Donnie um, purely and innocently enjoys every human being he runs into. In every meal he eats. Donnie is the greatest gift in my life. As my heart is beginning to, to come alive again, I'm now able to enjoy these people that have been around me. Donnie is helping me to get outside of me. So karaoke on Friday nights with Donnie. If you want to join us, we'd love to have you. Uh, it's a lot of fun. But my, my dad, um, someone very instrumental in my life, battled cancer for uh, six or seven years and eventually lost that battle. And at his funeral, I noticed an interesting kind of social dynamic take place at the front of the church. Uh, people were hugging my sister, my brothers, and my mom, and those normal boundaries and barriers that we have in life went away. And that affection had a profound impact on me on my way home from the funeral. I told my wife, Allison, I want to do something with that. So 15 years ago, I made this sign that just says free hugs and for a decade, every Tuesday, I had it on my calendar to stand on a street corner in downtown Lexington and just offer free hugs and have a conversation with anyone that wanted one. One of the very first men who walked across the street, got within eye distance of it, looked at me and said, oh, I thought it said free hogs. <laughs> I was like, man, only in Kentucky would people think we're selling free farm animals, right? <laughs> like, sorry to disappoint you, man. There's a courthouse across the street, and the judge is a friend of mine, and anytime he sentences anyone for a drug-related offense, part of their punishment is they have to come and hug me. So I get a lot of side hugs on those days. But a woman rode up recently on her bicycle, and she sat there for a good time, watched me hug probably a dozen or so people, and kept taking hits off her cigarette. And I noticed she had a question, so I said, can I help you? She said, what's your sign say? And it hit me, she couldn't read. So I told her what my sign said, and I just didn't wait for the invitation. I just kind of went in for the kill. And I wrapped her up, and when I did, she took hold of the back of my shirt, death grip on it, started crying, uncontrollably sobbing like a little kid. And when she regained her composure, she said something I'll never forget. She said, nobody's hugged me in a long time. You can appreciate that, even if you don't understand it. 
when nobody hugs you, you begin to feel like a nobody. Nobody's a nobody to God. Everybody's a somebody to him. And in Mark chapter 10, we're introduced to a somebody who's been made to feel like a nobody, sadly, by religious people. Let me read the account. It says this, as Jesus and his disciples left town, I want you to notice this first. A great crowd was following everywhere Jesus went. People wanted to be with him. Can the same be said of us? A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road as Jesus was going by. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus from Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Religious people, be quiet. Shh, it's too busy for you. Some of the people yelled at him. But he only shouted louder. I love his tenacity. Son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, this is why we love Jesus, he stopped. And he said, tell him to come here. So they called the blind man. Cheer up, they said. Come on, he's called you. Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. Teacher, the blind man said, think about how long he's had to think about this response. I want to see, clear and to the point. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has healed you. And instantly the blind man could see. Now, if I could highlight one sentence in that story, be verse 52, the question Jesus asked, what can I do for you? See, all too often, I think we assume we know what another person needs, whether it's our spouse, our kids, our coworker, our neighbor, our roommate. But friends, love never assumes anything. Love always asks. And the question love asks is, what can I do for you? And then you know what love does? It listens. Specifically, love listens to people. I could be wrong and we could disagree about this. I think listening might be the most neglected and needed form of love in our society today because of phones. We just need to pay attention to one another. Years ago, Christmas fell on a Sunday, and I challenged our church. It was a little bit of a risk. The week before, I said, hey, you know, we could come to church next week on Christmas, and we could sing about the birth of Jesus, and we could read the Christmas story and light candles, and that would all be good. Or we could wake up Christmas morning, and we could blitz our city with simple acts of love and just let our community know that we understand what Jesus came to do. And so we did that. We didn't have church that Sunday. And a little six-year-old girl in our church was one of thousands of people who woke up excited on Christmas morning, not about opening gifts, but about giving gifts. Her name was Julie. And Julie took her allowance money for a week and she bought every brownie mix she could get her hands on. And for the days leading up to Christmas, she baked brownies and she cut them into little squares and wrapped them in cellophane. And then on Christmas morning, she let her plan out of the bag. She told her mom and dad, I want to go to the University of Kentucky's campus and I want to give away brownies. And her parents didn't have the heart to tell her, hey, the students are gone, they're home for Christmas. So her dad just put her in the minivan and thought, we'll go for it. So they drove to the campus and Julie set up her table next to the library. And as only God would have it, the only people on campus that day were foreign exchange students. They didn't have anywhere to go. So they were there studying and they're going in and out of the library, taking brownies all morning and young Muslim student by the name of Ahmad, working on a PhD in infrared technology, picked up a brownie. Julie didn't know this, but Ahmad had been questioning the tenets of his faith for months, for years. So he walked inside. The brownie was good. He came back to get a second one. And when he did, he said to Julie, he asked her, why are you doing this? Open door. Now you got to know Julie, a little six-year-old girl. She's got a lot of sass even today as a teenager. But she put her hands on her hips and she said, because Jesus wants me to. 
Like, no, duh, everybody knows Jesus loves brownies. That's in the Bible somewhere, right? And so <laughs> Ahmad then followed it up with this question. Can I come to church with you sometime? And before Julie's dad could intervene and intercept that question, Julie said, sure, we'll pick you up next Sunday. And so they did. They were on the line then. So they picked up Ahmad and they brought him to church. And my favorite part of the story is instead of bringing him into the auditorium where all the adults worship, Julie just led him by the hand into our children's ministry environment. And Ahmad had never been in an American church, so he didn't know any difference. So he sat on the floor that day, all the other kids, you know, cross legs, crisscross applesauce. And he heard a story about how Jesus loved this guy named Zacchaeus. And friends, in his brilliant engineering scientific mind, he reached the simple conclusion that if Jesus could love a guy like Zacchaeus, maybe, just maybe, he could love me. And that set Ahmad on a journey, on a path towards investigating the claims of Jesus and surrendering his life to him. And someday, you're going to spend eternity with Ahmad, all because a six-year-old girl partnered with the Holy Spirit and Betty Crocker Okay, all because a six-year-old little girl embodied this truth that we see the only thing that counts. Could it be that simple, church? Is faith expressing itself in love? Now, let's do a deep dive here. I tend to believe, and you can disagree with this, that P.T. Forsyth was onto something when he said, if within us we find nothing around us, we, if within us we find nothing above us, we succumb to what is around us. Meaning, if we don't have something bigger than ourselves to give ourselves to, we'll give in to all the temptations and pressures and distractions of daily life. Let me illustrate this. Years ago, I was holding a meeting in my office with some prominent church leaders from around the United States, all older, wiser than me. I just didn't want to embarrass myself. The subject was how to eradicate AIDS in Africa. Huge discussion, right? So I wanted to leave a good impression with them about our church. And unbeknownst to me, our staff would play jokes on each other, and I'd put a dead animal on someone's desk earlier in the week. And so I didn't know they were getting me back that day, but they took down the picture of my family off the wall and they replaced it with a poster of the Jackson Five. So the whole meeting, I'm sitting with my back and these prominent church leaders are looking at Randy and Tito and Jermaine and Marlon and Michael. And I'm, you know, talking about these big issues. I tell you that because I'm often oblivious. My wife will definitely tell you that too. What's going on around me? And I'm definitely thick-skinned at time to the people that God puts in my path on a daily basis. If within us we find nothing above us, we will succumb to what is around us. Now, again, agree to disagree, but I think that which separates God from us, the dimension he lives in, the dimension we live in, is what I'll call a thin space, a thin membrane. I think he's closer to us than we realize. And I think where we'll see him the most is in people that bear his image. Now, the way I illustrated this with my kids years ago was using whales. You understand whales spend the majority of their lives underwater. But every so often, whales have to come to the surface and get a breath. Otherwise, they can't sustain life underneath. You're no different. I'm no different. We live down here in the chaos of a fallen world filled with darkness and saturated with disorder and death. But through worship, and through the preaching of God's word and through gathering together, we are able to enter into the presence of God himself and breathe in the air of heaven. And that sustains us for the week to come. This is why the apostle Paul said, we, the people of God, live by faith, not by sight. Easier said than done. We're called to focus on the invisible all the while living in a very visible reality. Now, New York City ophthalmologists will tell you there are more nearsighted people in this one city than any other city per capita in the United States. 
Because every day, the majority of New Yorkers are walking around with tall buildings. They're hemmed in on all sides, so they only use their field of vision for short distances. And I think what's happening physically in New York City is what's happening spiritually in the American church. We're missing that which is beyond us. All the while, it's often right in front of us. See, Jesus healed another blind guy in the Gospels. And when he was done healing him, people wanted to know, what do you see? Been blind his whole life. They're curious, what do you see? In that powerful first moment, he opens his eyes. Do you remember his response? I see trees. And you can hear the crowd. They're probably dismissing that. Oh, he's seeing people. He thinks they're trees. Let his eyes adjust. He's been blind. He'll get used to light. He'll realize it's not trees, it's people. Isn't that what we do? We dismiss everything. I've often wondered when he said he saw trees, what if he was seeing trees, right? Like the Bible begins in a garden with Genesis and there's a tree of life. And Revelation, the last book in the Bible says we will end up in a garden with the tree of life. What if when this man said, I see trees, Jesus was like, whoa, I healed you too much. You're not supposed to see that yet. (laughs) It's a possibility, right? See, love from Jesus' perspective, and not only listens to people, don't miss this, love looks at people. Again, you want to see God today? Look at the person sitting next to you. They bear the image of the Creator. It was never more real to me than when I lived in Haiti. I lived there for four years, had the privilege of serving uh, the poorest country in the world. And every Saturday, I would go to this open-air market to buy food. One day, I was walking out with two bags filled with fruit. I was so grateful for what God had provided for me for that week. And I walk out, and across the street from me was a man who was completely naked. We don't see this in the United States very often, this kind of poverty. His legs were a twisted mess. I later learned that his parents had crippled him purposely as a baby so that he would be forced to beg and generate money for his family. That's the kind of poverty we're talking about in places like Haiti. But I noticed his eyes never really fixed on anything, kind of danced and darted around. He was blind, and he had a little cup in his hand, and he was begging, head bowed in humiliation from people walking by, and no one was putting money in that cup. And man, I was broken in that moment. That's someone God created. That's someone Jesus died for. That's someone the Father loves. Before I could get to him, overcome with emotion, I watched him put his hands down in the sewage that runs in the streets in Haiti, and he began pulling things out of it like an old double-A battery. And my brokenness went to a new level. And I thought, of all the places to put your hands, let alone to see it the way this man saw it as a place where his dependence lie. So I got there and I put my hands on his face. And in Creole, I said, man, you don't know me. My name is John, but I'm your brother and I love you. And you have a father who loves you. And I was so overcome with emotion. I was just trying to keep my emotion in. He smiled. In his situation, he found reason to smile. Took hold of my face and started feeling the contours of my face. And he said, I love you too. And I said, I want to help you. I'm going to go get some friends. I'm going to come back. We're going to get you out of here. We're going to take care of you. Whatever you need, we're going to take care of it. He didn't stop me. I left. I came back 20 minutes later and he was gone. And I was devastated. I thought to myself, how did I miss, how did I miss this opportunity? Three years passed. And I'm cleaning up the beach in Haiti with some of the kids from our school. American companies dump their garbage off the shores of Haiti and it washes up. And so we're cleaning up all this garbage, all these syringes and other things. And I hear this familiar sound in the distance. And eventually this teenage boy walks around the corner near our school 
and he's got a rope tied around his waist, and he's pulling this chair. They put bicycle wheels on it. They turn it into a wheelchair. And seated in the wheelchair was the blind man I'd seen begging three years earlier. And he had taken an old piece of PVC pipe, and he had made a flute out of it, and he was playing the familiar children's song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. And man, I laid my rake down. I couldn't get to him quick enough. And I ran up there and I put my hands on his face and he immediately put his hands on my face. I said, do you remember me? And he just shook his head no. And I said, I I wanted to help you years ago and I I don't want to miss this opportunity now. Will you please let me help you? And he took this straw hat off and he looked at me and he looked at the young man that was helping him. And he said to me, can I pray for you? And I didn't know how to receive that. I said, no, I, I want to help you. He said, no, no, can I pray for you? So I said, sure. And so he bows his head, and then he said, Father, please help my brother see you the way that I see you. And here I thought he needed me. And God knew I needed him. If we're not careful, we'll miss this. Galatians 5, the only thing that counts Faith expressing itself in love. And then Paul builds on it in Galatians 6 by giving us the practical application. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. Could it be that God's only rule for you is that you carry the burden of a person next to you, beside you? If you look at people, you listen to people, you're loving them the way God would love them. And if you take their burden and you carry it to Jesus, you're doing everything that God expects of you. Could it really be that simple? A friend of mine's a professional photographer, and in Rome he took this picture not too long ago of a woman begging outside of a cathedral. Seventeen other people in the frame, they've just left Mass at a Catholic church where they've been worshiping Jesus, confessing their sins, hearing God's Word preached through a homily. And here's an opportunity. And isn't this like the religious world? Isn't this like Christians? To not pay attention to the people that God puts right in front of them. He took this picture in Barcelona, And man, I understand the dilemma of the white-haired man in this picture. If I don't make eye contact with the kid with the cup, then maybe the kid with the cup doesn't exist. And if he doesn't exist, then maybe I'm not on the line to help him out. I get the dilemma. I get it. I've been there. We're called to carry each other's burdens, and in this way we fulfill what Jesus has done for us. It's that simple. Uh, This is a good friend of mine, Roger, and his son, Wilson. Roger's an Irishman with MS, and he has made it a point to adopt Dozens of children with physical and or mental challenges in life, and Wilson is one of those kids. Wilson is his newest son. Wilson, when his parents were born, were uh, dying of AIDS in Africa, and they had to give him up for adoption, and so some relatives took him, and they didn't have the means to care for Wilson, so they put him in a closet, and they would bring him food every day, but they would never let him out. So for the first four years of Wilson's life, he lived in total darkness, and his eyes never formed correctly, and he is completely blind. This is a picture of his first trip to the beach. He'd heard about the beach, but he'd never been there, and so Roger made it a point to take him there. And when his feet hit the water, he laughed and cried all at once. He was excited and scared, and Roger said repeatedly, I got you. I won't let anything happen to you. You can trust me. Isn't that what our Father says to us? I got you. You can trust me. I'm not going to let anything bad happen to you beyond what I can handle. That's why we can live by faith, not by sight. 
Leroy and D'Artagnan, maybe you saw their story in ESPN. One of them lost his legs when he was little. The other one lost his eyesight when he was little. They met on a wrestling team in high school. Now one of them carries the other one, and the other one tells the other one where to go. One is the legs, the other the eyes. And I heard that story, and I thought, isn't that a picture of the church? Isn't that what God designed for us? I carry you, you carry me. We help each other get where we cannot get on our own. We live by faith in a Father who is good and not by sight. I mentioned my dad, when he was dying of cancer, the radiation had burned a big portion of his mouth and his neck, and so we would sit beside his recliner and feed him feed chip, or ice chips to relieve the pain. One afternoon, I'm sitting there feeding him ice chips, and he kept looking around me and smiling. And so finally, I said, Dad, what are you looking at? And I turned around. I was the only one in the room. And he said, you don't see them, do you? Plural. I turned around again. I said, no, I don't, I don't see them. He said, for the last three days, children have been coming to visit me. He said, they're so full of life and joy. I wish you could see them. I think they've come to get me, take me home. I said, Dad, I wish I could see them too. That night, I was scheduled to fly back to Kentucky to preach. And so, and it was my last evening at home with my mom and my dad and my siblings. And we're all sitting at the dining room table. My dad's still in his recliner. And about halfway through the meal, he says to my mom, who's at the kitchen sink, Carol, do you feel that? My mom turns off the water and she looks at him. He said, the two hands right now in the middle of your back, do you feel that? My mom looked at us and I just kind of shrugged my shoulders. I didn't know what to say. And all my dad said was, he knows you're tired. And he just wants you to know he's got to carry you the rest of the way. Those are the last words I heard my dad say before he died. 50 years of marriage, my mom was tired. My dad was just promising, he'll carry, he's got you. We live by faith. Not by sight. This is Bennett, three-year-old little girl in our church family who was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor. I don't wish this on anybody. No parent wants to see this happen to their children. Katie Ann and Billy, her dad and mom, are wonderful people. Man, they prayed against that tumor, but the tumor won that fight. And little Bennett died, but before she died, she told her mom several times, when I get to heaven, mom, I'm going to pick your favorite flowers, yellow flowers, and I'm going to bring you a bouquet just to let you know I'm okay. Katie Ann was recently praying and she was struggling with suffocating grief, deep sadness. You lose a child, there's nothing worse in life. She felt like her prayers were just bouncing off the ceiling one morning and so she got up and she went into the living room to clean up the toys that her other kids and the mess they had made. And she rolled up the living room rug and underneath it, tucked underneath it, was this little puzzle piece to a puzzle they don't own, a puzzle they've never worked, and printed on the piece were yellow flowers. They built that house. No one else has even lived in that house. And I know what the skeptic does. They dismiss this stuff, and even religious people do. I just tend to believe. Maybe a little girl's been picking some yellow flowers in heaven, and she just wanted her mom to know, I really am okay, and it's all going to work out. See, again, tendency, and God's okay with this. He understands the dilemma we're in. We have limited understanding, and so we tend to say, man, if I was in charge... John, your dad wouldn't have died. Bennett wouldn't have died. If I was in charge, things would be different. Things would be easier. J. Vernon McGee, the old wise preacher, once said, this is God's universe. He does things his way. Now, you may have a better way of doing things, but you don't have a universe. Okay? And so we have to acquiesce. We have to come to grips with the way God's doing things. So what's his expectation of you in the meantime until he redeems it all and rescues it all and changes it all? What do we do? 
Well, the way I illustrate that is with this little, little vase filled with water. What did Jesus do for you? I mean, if you were to simplify it for kids, what did Jesus do for you? Philippians chapter 2 uses a Greek word, kenosis. It just says Jesus emptied his life for you. That's what he did. Poured it out willfully, gratefully, humbly, genuinely. And then what he did was fill you with life and love and joy. And what do he invite you to do? To do for others what he did for you, to take what he's given you and empty it out, pour it out for others. And there's, again, a capacity in this where we get skeptical and we get greedy and we, we kind of hoard the grace of God and the love of God. And we say, well, man, if I give it away, there won't be anything left for me. But we forget who's the sustainer and the giver of all good things, and it's God. Whatever you give away, he'll give you back an increasing measure. He never runs out of the good stuff. Same's true with your money. You think, man, God, can I really trust you? I got bills to pay. Should I really give it to that person in need? Should I really give it to this church? And we worry and we forget he has the hairs on your head numbered. He's got plenty more where that came from. And he'll just keep giving you increased supply. Romans chapter 5, I love this passage. It says it this way. We can't round up enough containers to hold everything God generously pours into our lives through the Holy Spirit. Friends, he's got more where that came from. He'll just keep giving it to you. How about this one from 1 Timothy chapter 1? The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. I love that word. Along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. See, his expectation of you. It's not that you fill other people's cups. His expectation of you is just that you empty yours every day. And as you do that, you begin to trust him more and more because he'll continue to fill it. He'll continue to give you more love and more joy and more life so that you can give it to other people. I'll be done with that. Let me end with this. When I was 12, I accidentally burned down my neighbor's carport um, with the help of some friends and fireworks, okay? And so uh, my older brothers told me, the police are going to arrest you. You're going to go to jail for a long time. They love to bully me. And so I believed my brothers. I thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm going to prison. So I ran and hid in the woods, and the sheriff's deputy showed up at my house to let my parents know what I'd done. And um, several hours later, I finally realized i got to come home. So I leave the woods, and I start walking home. And at a distance, I can see my dad standing at the end of the driveway, arms folded. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to heaven today. Like, this is the day I'm going to meet Jesus. It's getting ready to happen. And uh, I get there, and very calmly, he looks at me and he said, John, uh, each of you boys owes the neighbors $40 for the damage you caused. Now, I had a little lawn mowing business, $6 a yard, and I'm doing the math in my head. I mow seven yards. I can pay this back. No big deal, right? So the next day, I pushed my lawnmower down the street to the first house. I'm going to mow their yard. And my dad followed me, which was weird. He was carrying his lawn chair, which was even more weird. And he set it up in the driveway. And he said, John, I want you to sit in the lawn chair. I'm like, okay, it's my dad. So I obey and I sit down. He goes over and starts my lawnmower up. And man, I jumped up and protested. No, 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 dad, I got this. I got it. And he looked at me very sternly and he said, you sit in that chair. So I was like, okay. So I sit in the chair and I had to watch my dad mow that whole yard. Trimmed around the trees. He swept off the driveway, knocked on the door. The lady gave him the $6 and put it in his pocket. Seven yards that week, he set that lawn chair up and made me sit in it. Made me watch him mow all seven yards. At the end of the week, he took $42 out of his pocket. He handed it to me. A big smile on his face 
He said, I want you to take $40 and I want you to pay the neighbors what you owe them. I want you to take the remaining $2 and put it in your pocket. Go to the pool, go to the arcade, go to the gas station, buy candy, Coke, whatever you want. Just enjoy it, John. Just enjoy it. And I had a hard time receiving that gift. I went across the street and humbly, humiliation, I paid my neighbors back what I owed them. And I went home and I went straight to my bedroom. And my dad knew I was wrestling with that. He knocked on my door and I said, come in. And he came in. And the minute I saw him, I started to cry. You ever been there? I just didn't know what to say. Sat down on the edge of my bed and I'll never forget it. He has these big warm hands and he pulled me in tight, let me cry it out. When I was done crying, he had that big smile on his face again. He said, hey, I just want you to know something. You owe God a debt you'll never be able to pay him back for. And he took care of it. And all he wants you to do is enjoy your life and help others enjoy theirs. That's all he wants. For the first time in my life, I had a framework. I had a picture for what grace really looks like. And then I had a professor in college tell me, John, grace is the face love wears when it meets imperfection. Never forgotten that. Because that has been true in my life. I don't deserve for a minute what my Father in heaven has done for me. But am I grateful? Yes. So every day, every person I meet, I want to listen to them and I want to look at them the way my Father in heaven listens to me and looks at me. I want to carry their burden if I can. And friends, if you do the same thing this week, watch out. Colorado Springs will never be the same and you'll never be able to put enough seats in this room and have enough water in that baptistry for what God will do in your presence. Keep it simple. <laughs> Let me pray for us. God, may it start today. When we walk out of this room, may we pay attention to our spouses, our children. May we be fully engaged at work tomorrow with the most demanding, most difficult person to love. May we be attentive to them. Father, if there's a waitress today or a gas station attendant, God, I pray we're able to show them your love and your joy by just how we treat them. And may we continue to build on that. May that momentum snowball until people realize we're different, that we've been on the receiving end of something that has radically transformed and changed us. God, we're sorry for how the church has complicated what you intended to be so simple for us to just love our neighbors the way that you've loved us. God, we're returning to that. And we're asking that you pour out your blessing and your presence in our attempt to reach people for Jesus. We love you. Thank you for him and the difference he's made in our lives. And all God's people said, amen.